0: Be back again this evening in our study in uh, 1 John. So the Apostle John in this epistle, a wonderful, encouraging letter that we started considering last week, and hopefully, God willing, over these next weeks, weeks we'll continue to just explore some of the great teaching, challenging in some instances, but also very encouraging. And the title tonight. Uh, of the study i've 've called it "What is Christianity? What is to think about that and then we 're going to go to the passage and try and understand uh, what it was that John was communicating to the community back in the first century so let 's pray together just again to say welcome to you, thank you for joining us and let 's pray, Lord, we come again this evening, thanking you for every good gift that we have. We know that these gifts are from above. Lord, the gift of your word, uh, the gift, Lord, that you give to us as individuals, even the gift of life, the gift of of enjoying uh, friendships and the gift of the local church, gift of our families. And Lord, we do honor you with much thanksgiving tonight for all that you provide and give to us. Again, thanking you for your word and also that you have not left us as orphans, but given us your Holy Spirit to be our counselor, comforter, teacher, convictor. And lead us, therefore, this evening, enabling me to think clearly, to speak simply. And Lord, for each of us to receive your word and be to be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this evening with uh, uh, an introduction, beginning by just stating uh, a simple fact that sometimes the simplest questions we ask can evoke a variety of responses. And I wonder how many different answers we would get if we were sitting in a group, if I were to ask you tonight uh, this question of the title of the study tonight. uh, What is... Christianity. Perhaps even as you listen and uh, sit, perhaps in a group tonight, uh, providing some responses to that. What what is Christianity? Now, of course, I can't ask you. I can't hear exactly what your thoughts are. And and so, what I did in preparation was I went to the internet. I went to Google, and I typed in the question what is Christianity? And I got a variety of answers. I'm going to share some of them with you, some of them very interesting. And, and the first one was, Christianity is Western culture. And I used to think that naively when I was a younger person before I was converted. My thinking was that, well, if, if you're not Jewish, if you're not uh, Muslim, or if you're not Buddhist, and, and then you must be Christian, and, and, and Christians mostly live in the Western world, and so therefore, uh, Christianity is Western culture. Another response I found uh, was that to the Muslim, it is the dam that opposes the spread of Islam. So, there are those Muslims out there who believe that Christianity is that which blocks the spread of Islam. Another one I found was Christianity is the religion established by Jesus Christ. And we're going to have a look a little bit along the lines of that response uh, tonight as well. Here's a negative one that I found. And I've heard people, especially cynics and skeptics uh, in the world around us, uh, make this particular point. Christianity was invented evil as a tool used to manipulate people, Uh, using religion as a means of gaining control uh, over other people. And then just one final one, an organization with a specific ethic. In other words, there are those people who just see Christianity as promoting a certain uh, way of living, a certain morality, certain values that uh, are promoted. Well, the point I'm trying to make in this introduction is that there are conflicting views regarding the very nature of Christianity. Well, what is what is Christianity? Different people reaching different conclusions at different times, not only in the 21st century. But if we go down through every single century, I've no doubt that you will find that there are people who have promoted different uh, views. They have reached different conclusions regarding the very nature of Christianity. And and it was like that in the first century, and therefore the occasion for this particular letter that that, that John writes. He writes to people who have encountered conflict within their community. There were those in the community that did not agree with what had been taught, and that which was uh, taught to them uh, by the apostles. <clears throat> and they instead, they uh, claimed that they really knew a... Uh, way of superior spirituality. I did mention last week that they were known, it was the early stages of the Gnostic movement and had various views, and we'll pick up something of that in the study. This evening. So what John does is, very interestingly, he doesn't start this letter in the normal, uh, traditional way where he identifies himself, he identifies uh, his, the recipients of the letter. He just dives in on the deep end and he faces the confusion head on. And he does so by opening this particular letter uh, with a paragraph along the along similar lines as what we read in uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 1. So with that said, I do want to read these um, opening uh, verses, verses 1 to 4. So if you do have your Bible, do keep it open, follow with me, uh, keep it open through the study, uh, making some comments uh, along the way. So 1 John chapter 1, reading from verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard We proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some years ago, I was at a graduation ceremony at uh, the University of Pretoria. And I was somewhat surprised. When a fellow student was awarded a PhD uh, for a particular thesis, and 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 in that thesis, and I'm going to quote, he was seeking to demonstrate how the resurrection of Jesus serves as the fundamental myth for the Christ cult. So, do you get what what he was trying to do? He was looking back. And in this thesis was promoting the thought that Jesus did not actually rise from the dead. But the important thing in his opinion was that people believed that he did rise from the dead. And for him, the important thing was simply because they believed it, not because it actually happened, their believing made a difference and gathered together Christians uh, down through the ages. So to perhaps put it a little bit differently, it's the kind of thinking that promotes uh, value, it promotes usefulness of believing something as long as it makes you feel better. Even if, even if it is something you believe. That did not really happen or is not really true. Now, you may be thinking, wow, how can anybody do that? Well, sometimes we find ourselves guilty of this. Uh, we've got to be thinking about this. Is this a valid approach? Is it valid to say that believing in something has value even though? It is not really true. Does it really matter? Does it really matter if we come back to this particular passage, when we come back to thinking about Jesus, does it really matter whether the word, as spoken of in John chapter 1, actually became flesh and made his dwelling among us? Does it matter that Jesus actually lived on earth that there was the reality of the incarnation that Jesus uh, took on the form uh, and of a body. So, how does that impact our faith? Again, the question, does it make any difference to your faith today whether Jesus really suffered and died, that he really was subjected to the wrath of God? Is it important to the substance of your faith that Jesus physically and actually and historically rose from the dead? And I want to divert just for a minute because uh a bit tongue in cheek, I guess, and I guess and I would hope that no one would be offended. But I've seen this kind of practice outside of the context of speaking about Jesus, and, and I'm I'm referring now. Uh, to instances that I've heard where this kind of approach is used by grieving people, say people have lost a loved one. This, this is the kind of, or these are the kind of comments I have heard. Sometimes grieving people console themselves with the belief that the belief in their hearts that their departed loved one is now a twinkling star in the heavens above. So they're hurting. They're feeling the loss of the loved one, and and, and there's an expression of thought, well, this loved one is no longer with us, but they will say something, but this person uh, is now a twinkling star in the heavens above. Now, Now they know surely that that's not true, but they say it to make themselves feel better. Another one that I've heard is that a departed loved one may be picking daisies in heaven's garden. Oh, is that true? Do they really believe that? Or are they simply saying that to make themselves feel better? And so this approach uh, finds value. It finds benefit in believing what people like to believe is true or what they want to believe to be true. And it's divorced from the reality, from the actual Events or the actual thing that has taken place. Now, why have I introduced that or why have I spoken like that? Because this was the approach uh, to faith and hope and spirituality uh, that took place back in the first century. This particular group uh, regarded Jesus not as being a physical being, but they saw Jesus, they believed that Jesus was merely. received as a kind of phantom or, or spirit. the Gnostics denied the physical reality of Jesus. And so therefore we come back to the passage and my first point this evening is we've got to ask the question, the very important question in the, in the light of them denying the physical reality of Jesus, the question is is the life of Jesus, at the core and heart of Christianity. And when when I, when I mention the, the life of Jesus, I'm speaking there about the actual being of Jesus, Him being a living person. Again, just to try and uh, create some contrast and expression over here in terms of uh, a phrase, I thought back some years ago, one of the hardest and perhaps even the saddest moments of my life was... Uh, When my dad, after many months of suffering with cancer, I started going with him to see uh, his specialist surgeon. And on this particular day, uh, we were sitting in this surgeon's office and he literally pronounced a death sentence over my dad. My dad was told on that day that the cancer was now uh, not treatable. They had done everything they could to eradicate and to treat it in different ways, radiation, chemotherapy therapy and surgery. And the verdict simply was, "Your life is soon to be over. You have perhaps a few months to live, and we were devastated. And I would describe that event, that particular uh, meeting with that doctor, as him communicating, I would describe as words of death. There was a message of death. I remember very clearly driving away from that appointment with my dad uh, beside me, and, and the, we, we felt a heaviness. There was a silence. There was nothing said in the car, both of us having heard these words of death. No. I refer to that tonight because it's the very opposite. It's the very opposite that John brings to us in this passage. Unlike that doctor on that particular occasion, John announces uh, something over here, some promising news, some good news. He speaks here about the word of life. The word of life. Now we need to look and explore what is it that he means by the word of life. Let's have a look at the first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Well, what is that? That is Jesus. That is Jesus that is being referred to. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. So the life of Jesus, the being of Jesus, the reality of Jesus is the message of life it's the good news message of life we could even say from our particular perspective and understanding that it's an expression for the gospel that this Jesus being described as having life as a being being good news the reality of uh, of of life uh, and, and and drawing the conclusion that the gospel is centered in Christ. And, and, and the important message that John is countering over here, that John is bringing against uh, those who had departed from the church, is that this message, this this message of life speaks about the real person of Jesus, who in this letter is referred to as life, life. Have a look at the second verse. An example of of, of him being referred to as life. Jesus portrayed as that eternal life. He's not speaking about the eternal life in this instance that that is a gift from God for those who believe. He's speaking here describing Jesus' eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's speaking here about the person of Jesus. And and so the emphasis, the, the important reality and that which they needed to receive, that which we needed to receive as well, is that Jesus is a living being. The historical truth that Jesus was real is absolutely essential to the message, the life good news message that we get in the Bible. As opposed to Think about what many religions promote and, and, and many religions bring to the table. Many religions bring a system. They bring certain thoughts and, and thinking. They bring a list of values and, 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 and even beliefs. Christianity is far more, far more than that. It is Jesus who really exists. If you take Jesus away You have nothing left. And there are some today, many of the liberal mainline churches have removed the reality of the historicity of Jesus and and all that he did. And they're denying all of that, rather saying, well, as long as you believe that in your head, whether it happened or not, it doesn't matter. No, Jesus, who really exists, is therefore the essential, the core and the heart of Christian Proclamation. Now, the Gnostics had a system, and many professing religions have systems of ideas today. But systems are nothing. Ideas are nothing. What Christianity has, what others do not have, here's the point, is life. The being of Jesus. And we're going to expand on that as we move on in the passage. The fact that life of Jesus himself. The one who is the creator, the sustainer of life. The one is the life, is also the light and the salvation of men. And so then what am I saying? What? Remember the question at the beginning, what is Christianity? Christianity then, without Jesus Christ, there simply would be no Christianity. And And not just Jesus as an idea, as a thought, as a myth. Nonsense. No, none of that. The the reality, uh, the the living being, Christ who is proclaimed, therefore, in Christianity, um, it is Christ or nothing. Which leads me to a second question. Why is the life of Jesus at the core and heart of Christianity? Why is it that uh, speaking about a myth is nonsense and meaningless and and useless and, and without value? Well, there are three things I want to highlight from this passage that we we see uh, from John over. Why is the life of Jesus at the corn heart of Christianity? Well, the first is that we are told in this passage that Jesus existed in past eternity. In that opening phrase, in the first verse, John is announcing what has always been true about the word of life. Now, this is an amazing truth if we would just allow our minds to wrap around what has been said over here. From the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and seen, and that sounds very much like the opening verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was. A God and, and with God. And you go back to the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God. And and so John yeah, is, is, is introducing or reminding us that Jesus is not just an innovation that happens to be at a particular point in time. Jesus is not some kind of afterthought. But the proclamation, the truth about Jesus is that he's eternal. The eternal son existed before the historical manifestation and the the preaching followed the historical manifestation. So not in verse 2, the pre-existence of Jesus. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus existing in eternity past, think of something of the greatness of the impact and the reach and the implications of that, that that this is not uh, like Islam, where Muhammad at a particular point in time has a dream and and writes down some thoughts and and approaches and beliefs and, and there's a religion that emerges. Christianity with Jesus at the center extends all the way beyond the beginning of the world into eternity as the second person of the Trinity. But then secondly, as as John moves on, he not only reaches back into eternity past regarding the existence of Jesus, but he makes the point secondly that Jesus appeared in time. The dramatic event. The eternal the eternal son entered time and history as an actual person. The second verse tells us the life appeared back to the gospel the word became flesh. Real flesh. And notice notice what John immediately goes to over here. He He presents himself. He describes Jesus as presenting himself to our three higher senses, if you want to call them that. He speaks of people hearing, of their hearing and their sight and their touch. Why is he doing that? It is because of the reality of his being in the incarnation when he appeared in time so that they were able to objectively describe, of course, in the writing of the scriptures, in the gospels, and later in the letters, the historicity, the truth of who Jesus is, and what Jesus came to do. So it's not just hearing, yeah, no, but men, yes, heard God's voice in the Old Testament, but to have seen Jesus. But also to have, as we saw in the case of Thomas, where Jesus said to him, uh, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and, and put it in my sight, stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas's response, my Lord and my God. So the reach back into eternity, the manifestation of Jesus at a particular time in history, breaking through in the time continuum. And then thirdly, Jesus comes to fulfill the purposes of God so now if you take this preface these first couple of verses as God unveils this uh, uh, purpose that he has a purpose from eternity past that's where Jesus also is has been and he reaches into the present and also the uh, eternity future And bringing about his purpose and ends in verse 4 where he speaks about completing joy. So the purposes of God at a particular point in time when the life appeared. Enabling those who heard and saw and touched to proclaim this objective message of the historicity of Jesus. Able to declare to others the accomplishment of of what Jesus did to bring about, which leads me to my third point. What does the word of life achieve? Achieve? Why this enormous effort by God orchestrating the unfolding of history in time, but even beginning in eternity past, uh, preparing, as it were, for all the Old Testament writings, focusing in on Christ, eventually the coming of Christ. Uh, Seen by the apostles, preached by the apostles, recorded by them in the New Testament. Why should all of this be brought together and what does it accomplish? Well, John concludes the preface. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard as a purpose clause, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son. Jesus Christ. Well, there's no doubt that this purpose comes about because God has a loving interest in his fallen creatures. We know the well-known verse, John three sixteen: God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But very specifically, a couple of things that I want to uh, speak of that is designated or highlighted in this passage. The first thing, what does the word of life achieve? Fellowship. Now, John uses the word fellowship here rather than salvation. I'm not quite sure why he does that, but, 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 but can you see, if you think about it, that salvation brings about the reconciliation of sinful man with the Holy God. And when there is reconciliation, there is fellowship. Not only the, uh, the wedge that has come between sinful men and a holy God, but the very nature of, of relationships amongst people is that there also are wedges driven between people on the horizontal plane. And so John brings this message. He says to them that Jesus has brought about so that they too can have fellowship with, and he, he includes himself amongst the other apostles, fellowship with us. So don't worry about these Gnostics. Don't worry about these people who are bringing a new message. We want to assure you that that, that which we have taught you, that which you have come to believe uh, about the reality of who Jesus is in, in his, in his actual being brings you into a connectedness with us as the apostles and in turn or really the other way around in relationship with God as well. So salvation is needed on the horizontal level because there's uh, hostility between people. Um, Salvation that is provided for, needed on the vertical level, bringing about uh, reconciliation because of the hostility between people and God. So fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now there's assurance So what is Christianity? Yes, Jesus is at the core of Christianity, but what is Christianity? Christianity is a message. It's it's that which has been accomplished in bringing about reconciliation, bringing about fellowship so that those who believe have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Verses 3 in the passage, incorporation into the communion or the fellowship of the church. You have fellowship with us. It says in verse 3 that the fellowship uh, is the meaning of eternal life. Now now this is eternal life. Verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent in this life and forevermore into the future. So fellowship, absolutely crucial, that which Jesus brings about in the work that he comes to do. Then he also says in verse 4, secondly, he brings about joy. We write this to make our joy complete. Our joy is those who have come into fellowship with the Father and with each other. Because God has made us as beings to know Him, to walk with Him, to know the blessing of fellowship with Him. And when when that fellowship is severed and when there's hostility between man and God, there can't be joy. Because the, the, the human being is unable to fulfill uh, his or her purpose. But when there's fellowship and when there's reconciliation and there's a coming together, God's eternal purposes are being accomplished in this being made in His image to enjoy and to experience the blessing of joy. The joy is ultimately to be perfected in heaven because we are being sanctified in the process. But certainly we can know and do know as believers a settled contentment that I'm no longer one who stands under judgment and the wrath of God. Now, just in conclusion, I want to raise a few implications. So fourthly, my, first, my fourth point is some implications. I really want to urge us as a church, and I'm very encouraged that Central Baptist Church Hold on to the old gospel. There's no need for these new innovative ideas that keep coming and going and rising and fading and, and falling and dividing and causing trouble. No. Don't, we, we don't know. They faced this issue in the first century with these groups wanting to break off with innovative ideas. Just hold on to the old gospel, focused in Jesus, focused on his work, focused on who he is, focused on what he accomplished in fellowship and reconciliation. There was an old hymn or there is a hymn that we used to sing. I don't know if we can still sing it sometime. Uh, Tell me the old, old story. That, That is crucial. Nothing new needed. Treasure the message of the incarnate Son of God. We have the word of life. We have the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The second implication, and we can't miss it, and, and it's something we're going to see repeatedly in this letter, is place a high priority on godly relationships. Now, the relationship with God is to be nurtured and to developed and, and grown. But also we cannot neglect the importance of horizontal relationships. So this word fellowship is a specifically Christian word. And, and, and it speaks about this common participation that we have as believers in the grace of God. The salvation of Christ, the indwelling uh, presence of the spirit. It does mean, and we're going to see the implications of this through the book. That our fellowship with each other is, 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 is that which arises from and depends on our fellowship with the Father. The two are connected, definitely connected. The absence of fellowship with other believers could be an indication. John will show us this. Could be an indication of no fellowship with God. This one has implications on the horizontal. A couple of comments uh, under that point: We cannot be content with an approach in evangelism that shares the gospel message with people, but does not integrate them into the local church. The very nature of of conversion of of salvation is fellowship with God, with each other in the church. Also, we need to perhaps be challenged in the area. We should not, as God's people, be satisfied with superficial social uh, friendship uh, instead of spiritual fellowship with the Father and also with the Son. And then thirdly, a third implication is living out God's purpose. Uh, Chief end of man, uh, glorify God. Uh, Now that all has been considered uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. uh, God has made you, unlike the other creatures, with the capacity and ability to know him, to walk with him, to glorify him, to worship him, to honor him. Live that out. And, And to know in that context the experience of true fulfillment rather than restlessness. God made you to have fellowship with himself and also with others, a challenge to us whether we're actually living out what God intended us to do. So just so far, um, a shorter study tonight. I do have a couple of questions that uh, will appear up on the screen uh, now. And uh, if you are In a situation where those questions can be discussed among you, please do so. It's also a review of of the study. Read those verses again. They're wonderfully rich, and um, uh, I trust it's been helpful uh, to you tonight. And so, Lord, as we conclude this time together, we do want to pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence in the revelation given to us in your word, and again, this passage tonight confirming the truth of the historicity of Jesus, not only appearing in time, but him being the second person of the Trinity in eternity past. And Lord, thanking you for all that which, all that he accomplished in bringing about this reconciliation, this fellowship that you intended for us as creatures made in your image, with yourself as God, and even with each other in the local church and faith community. And so, Lord, do bless us. Grow us, we pray, Lord, in our love for you, in our walk with you, and even in our relationships one with another, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen, and thank you for joining us. Uh, God bless